This Dharma Talk was presented at the Austin Zen Center in Austin, Texas. For more information, visit austinzencenter.org. Good morning, everyone. Um, it's uh, a really wonderful pleasure, great pleasure for, for, uh, for me to introduce, to those of you who don't know her, uh, Shosan Victoria Austin, um, who's been practicing Zen and yoga since 1971. Um, she is a Dharma heir of Sojin Mel Weitzman um, and a very long-term resident uh, of San Francisco Zen Center where she is a senior Dharma teacher. Um, Shosan's also deeply trained uh, in the Iyengar yoga uh, tradition and offers regular classes in a variety of settings, including um, regular yoga for sitters on Fridays at uh, the city center of San Francisco Zen Center. Um, and uh, she is an intermediate uh, senior teacher in the Yangar tradition and is helping to train the next generation of the Yangar teachers. Um, and that just scratches the surface of her uh, credentials. <laughs> um, I think I first met Chosan in 2000 at the Chapel Hill Zen Center when she came out for the mountain seat ceremony of my root teacher, uh, Joshua Pat Phelan. Uh, she gave the Dharma talk the next day, and uh, I it's just very easy to make a connection with her, which I'm very happy to say has been maintained mysteriously over the last 20 years. Um, and so I am uh, just delighted that I'm here now in Austin, where Shosan Austin is speaking to the Austin Zen Center Sangha. So thank you very <laughs> much for offering a talk to us. We're very grateful that you agreed and that you're with us today. Thanks. I do have one question before I begin. How long has um, Austin been practicing uh, social distancing or shelter in place? And what are the basic rules? Tim, do you want to answer that? Director Son? <laughs> sure. Do you, do you mean the Austin Zen Center or Austin population? Austin population or Austin Zen Center. Hi, Tim. Hey, <laughs> I'm just interested to know because it might be different in San Francisco. I'll turn up the volume a little so I can hear you. Yeah, we were we were paying attention to the, the changes in San Francisco as well. I think we were maybe a week or so later, or maybe two weeks uh, when we kind of went to distancing. It wasn't kind of severe measures at first, um, and only about, I'd say, 10 days ago, they went to sort of wearing masks in public. Mm -hmm. But the Austin Zen Center has been closed for probably about four, five weeks now. Um, yeah, it looks like the 14th of March was when uh, when we shut down here. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's a week behind San Francisco. And yeah. at Tassajara, Mako's teacher, Paul, has been at Tassajara since um, this started. And he's just on his way back, I believe. Um, to do some internet teaching in Ireland. And um, San Francisco Zen Center has been going full social distancing with like uh, sanitary requirements for uh, meals are being served individually by people wearing masks and gloves. And um, we, have, we do things like cleaning every single service with bleach um, once or twice a day, depending on what the surface is. 
and we have a quarantine place for people who need it. Uh, uh, very happy that to report that no one has needed it so far. And um, why do I mention this? You know, I mention this because we're um, bodhisattva practitioners. So, um, though priest and lay practice have different uh, focus um, in uh, degree of cloisteredness, we're all bodhisattvas on this bus. And so, how do we um, work with this uh, situation in which the entire world is facing this pandemic and as uh, Soto Zen practitioners and as members of a, a local Sangha, we have to understand what we want to exemplify and put forth in the world. And since most of the, uh, most of the people I see in front of me are lay people um, right now, I want to have a special emphasis on the unique job of a lay practitioner in this situation. And the, for me, the main, um, the main point of lay practice, the, uh, not, not that it doesn't have other points, but the main point on which lay practice is a uh, structural point on which it's built is given my own form and abilities, my own talents, my own relationships, my own work, um, my own course of life. How does the Dharma arise in this form, hand in hand with all beings? And of course, priest practice is given the form that Buddha handed down and that has been passed from generation to generations to the 92nd generation, uh, which is Pat, Paul, and me. How does um, this particular body and mind rebuild or remanifest that form so it can show and be passed to future generations. So neither lay practice nor priest practice works without each other. Priest practice needs lay practice to stay connected and relevant in the world. And lay practice needs priest practice to represent the tradition um, through body, speech, and mind. All of these are through body, speech, and mind. But there's different emphases that we have to be responsible for as our primary responsibility. Um, otherwise, the Dharma won't flourish. And if we are responsible for and build and create along those lines, the Dharma will flourish. And this precious resource will um, exist as a model and uh, um, an encouragement to people and be passed on to the next generation. So um, that's what I want to talk about um, for priests, of course, how do we exemplify in a narrow way? For lay people, how do we exemplify and connect in a very wide way throughout space and time? It's, it's important. And so I want to talk about this business of face-to-face -face and side-by-side. -side. How do we establish Sangha in the time of shelter in place? Is that okay with you if I, uh, if I go there? And if you help me go there. Because this group is of a size where we could, 
you know, I could say a few words and then we could, there could be back and forth. Um, and I think we'll all learn more. And if um, the recording includes more voices than mine, it will be helpful. It'll be more helpful, I think. Because I'm just one person. I have my own um, delusions and biases uh, that I work with every day. But um, all together we can uphold something and um, connect it with life. So I wanted to talk about uh, shelter in place. And thank you, Tim, for uh, telling me those boundaries. It sounds like it's similar to San Francisco in that people just started wearing masks. And um, thumbs up or thumbs down if it's similar to San Francisco in other ways, like some people are doing it and some people just aren't. <laughs> and so we have to be conscious, especially those of us with medical uh, issues such as age <laughs> or um, immune things or um, uh, stressful jobs that require us to work at night and so on. We have to be very conscious of what other people are doing and create distance. So I heard from one of my students in another country that she's living in a place where no one was practicing social distancing except her and where she has to constantly say, could you please be six feet away from me? Except she says two meters. Could you please be two meters away from me? And other people have been known to be hurt by that. Like, why do you want me to be two meters away from you? And so there's no um, kind of group agreement that they're gonna follow the procedures that are laid out by their country and their um, locality. And so that's very difficult. But we have that agreement. And then, of course, sometimes there's things that we need to do, like stand outside our mother's house uh, with a sign that says, I love you, Ma. Or, um, you know, or outside the hospital or go laundry shopping, or, uh, laundry, do laundry or go shopping, or, um, you know, any one of a number, go someplace to start our cars, move our cars on the street, or any of those things that we have to do. So we come into contact with others. And we also have to understand how this network um, brings up practice for ourselves, our community, and, and for everyone. So that's why it's important. So I wanted to start with teaching given by the Buddha and promoted very, very largely in this era by Thich Nhat Hanh. And that is the teaching of the six concords. And so um, particularly if you want to read this, these stories uh, in the sutras, you can look at the uh, Kula Gosinga Sutta, Kula Gosinga Sutta, the Upakilesha Sutta, Upakilesha Sutta, and the Kosambiya Sutta. Okay, so um, these, this sutra was about monks living in Kosambi, a group of three monks, a small sangha, very, very small sangha. They were living together in place, in a small place and practicing together. So the Buddha was traveling around their uh, area 
and came to their small place, which was in the park of the Gosinga Solitary Wood. And the, the three monks' names we still have as Anuruddha, Nandiya, and Kinduna. So three men, three male monks who were practicing together in one place. So Buddha said, how is your practice going? How is it going for you? Are you comfortable? Do you have enough food? And so Anuruddha uh, answered for all of them. He said, yes, it is going well. We practice in comfort. And we do have enough food, which we get through alms rites. So then the Buddha said, are you living in harmony like milk and water? Are you seeing each other with kind eyes? So this, um, this phrase like milk and water um, is a phrase that Suzuki Roshi brought to us. And so it's the essence of the tradition for how to live together or practice together as a sangha, like milk and water, where it mixes and blends and the entire water is infused with the entire taste of milk and vice versa. Are you living in harmony like milk and water? Are you seeing each other with kind eyes? So Anuruddha responded, yes, we are living together in harmony like milk and water. Yes, we see each other with kind eyes. And when I want to do something, I check it out with my Sangha mates. And then if they, um, if it's not in accord with our intention that they express to me, I don't do it. Whether it's in body, speech, or um, a body or a verbal action. So if it's not in accord, I don't do it. If it is in accord, I do. And so then Buddha wanted to um, find out a little bit more specifically how Anuruddha, Nandiya, and Kimila were practicing. And so he asked if um, he could stay and observe what they were doing. And they said, of course, yes, please do. And he wanted to know specifically what actions of uh, body, speech, and mind they, they practiced with in harmony with each other. And Anuruddha responded that he maintained bodily acts of loving kindness towards them, both outwardly and privately. Verbal acts of kindness and mental acts of kindness. He consulted them before acting and lived in accord with them. So that the monks were three in body, but one in mind, where it counted. And so um, Buddha then, he wasn't just going to take Anuruddha's word for it. He asked the other monks the same thing. And they all responded, yes, Anuruddha had it um, down and expressed what they would have said themselves. They verified Anuruddha's statement that they were practicing together like milk and water. So the Buddha praised their harmony, and the sutra goes on at length about it, but he went on to um, the uh, arc of those sutras, is that um, living together in peace and harmony like this, nourishing each other's practice, knowing what it is and nourishing it, 
is a prerequisite to going into the deeper states of concentration that allow us to see into the human condition. So the Sangha really is a treasure, it really is a jewel that upholds the rest of the practice. And so um, he verified um, by observing and inquiring further about their actions, he verified that this was indeed how they lived, that their actions and their ways of thinking about each other matched their words and their intention. They shared experience and insight. Their actions verified what they had said about their life together. So then the Buddha verified the diligence and resolute practice of these monks in creating Sangha with a small group. So in the Kosambiya Sutra, he comments, the nature of Sangha is harmony. And harmony is realized in the six concords. Sharing space, sharing the essentials of daily life, observing the same precepts, using words that support harmony, sharing experience and insight, and respecting each other's views and points of view. So the six are space, essentials, precepts, harmonious speech, sharing experience and insight, and respecting each other. So the highest and most comprehensive of these qualities that the Buddha, um, the Buddha took, um, kind of took pains to go further into the fact that the most important of these qualities from the point of view of the development of practice was right view, wise view, that is noble, emancipating, and leads to the rest. So the Sangha that follows the six concords will live happily and at peace. And please continue to practice this way. So here, it's interesting because of the restrictions on sharing space. It's interesting to think about, well, how do we share space? And where we have to all shop for ourselves, how do we share the essentials of daily life? Um, precepts um, are kind of covered if we continue to study and practice with them, but agreeing about the precepts needs to happen among the group, you know, with each other in situations. And the same with using words that support harmony. How do we support harmony if we don't, if we aren't in contact with each other? So what does that mean? to use words with each other that support harmony. What does it mean to share experience and insight? Are emails enough to share experience and insight? How do we do that during shelter in place? And how do we demonstrate that we respect each other's views, which includes each other's boundaries in this time? each other's personal understanding of what respect is. And there's variety that's cultural, uh, demographic, and um, personal. 
and um, how do we respect each other's needs? So um, those are all parts of respecting each other's views or viewpoint. So how do we do that in these times? What do we do? And is it satisfying? To what extent is it satisfying? To what extent does it nourish our ability to be stable and comfortable in our practice, in our attitude towards practice, and in the everyday work of practice, which is to face and address human suffering. How do we practice face to face? How do we practice face to face? How do we practice side by side? How do we practice in time to honor the tradition? How do we practice in space? to be and sustain all beings. So that's the basic message. And I want to open it up for a little while and then come back to lecturing a little bit more. Um, I want to, uh, I, I thought of some questions about sheltering in place and practicing as a sangha in sheltering in place. So at some point, maybe I'll read those questions, maybe I won't. But I'm interested to hear from you and to um, talk about it together. Since it's only, um, you know, it's not like a thousand people or something, we can do this. So I wonder if, Bruce, if you could call on people, or Choro, if you could call on people. And just let's hear from about three or four people, and then maybe I can um, respond and pick up on themes. Is that good? Is that a good plan? Thanks. You could raise your hand or unmute yourself if you have something to say, offer, or a question. Yes, if I may. Hello, Vicki. This is Tracy Kramer in, in Austin. Tracy, hi. Hello. I'll put you on speaker view so I can Great. see Great. Nice to see you, and thank you for your words. Hi. Hello. The, the six concords are really resonating for me right now because sheltering in place for me and my uh, 11 and 13 year old daughters and, and wife is, the is a very contained community. So to be more conscious about our living together through those, that kind of framework that the Buddha is offering is, uh, is something uh, that's really speaking to me right now because because I know you're kind of coming from looking at how is it sheltering in place with the fact that we can't be in touch with other people directly beyond our immediate home confines. Yeah. And, and yes, there's that. And then there's the, the in the really confined with three other people in a not very big house <laughs> with children who are very bored <laughs> and, and, and all of that that goes with it. So I, I, I'm not offering anything or even a question at this moment. I'm just really responding very positively to, to taking that up and looking more into the, that. But if you did want to say anything about bringing that to a very, or somebody else, that, that's, that's, that'd be nice. Yeah, yeah. Thank you. Okay, I'll, I'll, what if I hear from a, a few more people and then let's yeah. see if we can some things. Hi, Vicky. Yeah. Hi. Hi, Vicky. It's Pat Yingst. I don't know if you remember me, but you of stayed at my house. Back. 
way back yeah. in, I don't know, 2004 or something? With you. Anyway, yeah, it's great to see you. Hi. Uh, okay. Well, I, my experience is uh, a little different than Tracy's because I live alone. I was uh, really, really scared of being terribly lonely. Witness was first announced and hasn't really been the case. And uh, I think my lifeline is Zoom. I'm on Zoom just about every day. And uh, it's kind of amazing how, how together I, I feel with just seeing people's faces and little boxes. It's, uh, it's just been a great connector. And uh, so uh, I'm actually flourishing and uh, it's nice to have time to do things that I didn't have time to do before. Like read a lot of books and so it's been my experience. Thank you. Which is like 180 on Tracy's. Just saying. Yeah. But still, it's the similar issues. Yeah. So hear from somebody else, um, and then maybe I'll uh, speak to all of those. Hi. I can almost hear you. Can you? Can you hear me now? Yes. Sorry, I'm, I'm in my kitchen. It's a little cavernous. Um, I'm Josh. Hi, um, Josh. I have never been able to practice alone. Um, I, I have a little setup. It sits in my bedroom. It's there <laughs> all the time. I never sit there. Never. Um, and so I go to the Zendo to sit because otherwise I can't, like without the sort of social pressure of all those other people, <laughs> I find it very difficult. Um, I got up today. And I stood up and I had to walk around. Um, <laughs> so I guess I guess for me, like the challenge of social distancing, especially when I live alone, is like my ability to um, to take care of my mind. Um, to take care of my mind. Yes. You no, know, I I um I. I feel very far from Zen right now. Um, and th there are a lot of reasons for that. Social distancing is only one of them. But um, for me, the community and the, the Zen are one and the same, um, I guess, especially as a lay practitioner. And so I'm struggling really hard with my ability to practice right now, um, even with Zoom. <laughs> um, yeah. Thank you. Thank you. So I want to respond to um, that. It could could not have been more perfect in terms of finding a range of the space issues, the three people who just spoke. So um, so Pat is finding it easier to be by herself. Tracy is in family in a small space. And Josh is, um, you know, has a, a feeling for the community as the inspiration or source 
of the ability to actually do practice. So it's a full range of, um, of um, situations is described by those boundaries. So before I was a um, Soto Zen priest and a Yangar yoga teacher, um, I have a joint degree in architecture and urban planning and um, uh, specialized in, well, I did bank, so I did some commercial, but uh, community design was where I did my, uh, my thesis work. And so to see our situation in terms of like a range of um, uh, space and connection needs that need accommodating is it really comes naturally to me. And so what I want to I want to say is that um, there are different um, ends of the same issue, like um, the six blind men and the elephant. One person sees the tail, the other person sees the trunk, the other person sees the side of the elephant, see by touch, because they're very close to that elephant. But it's the same elephant that they're describing, they're experiencing it differently. So what does that mean? So what I would like to suggest is that um, we can set up our space and social space is part of how we set up our space to be conducive towards practicing by ourselves and with other people. If we come face to face with our difficulties and hindrances in doing so. So like for Tracy, he needs boundaries because he's in a small space and there's going to be some times when the kids, <laughs> you know, basically they're not, they're not, they're simultaneously not going to be happy with dad and they're simultaneously going to need him to entertain them or do something so that to relieve the intense monotony and boredom of being confined. And so with Pat, She's going to be happy because she's doing the things that she needs to do. But then the question is how to, um, and it's probably like, you know, Pat, knowing you even a little bit, I imagine that um, this episode of Alone Time could go on for months because it's a need that you've had for a long time to get to these things that don't usually get done, to actually be able to sit down and read a book. And then for Josh, it's someplace in between. Who are Josh's buddies who can hold them accountable and be a framework um, together for practice? But it's the same question. What practice framework, what connections are actually available to me can be uh, structured in a way that um, nourishes um, what I came to this under to do. So what I would suggest is that um, <clears throat> is that um, you get together and talk about these issues in this way. What does sharing space mean? Like for Tracy, he's sharing space, but not necessarily with people who share his practice intention. And he can't prescribe that his kids will share his practice intention. He has to be with the practice intention that his kids have. 
course, on a human uh, fundamental level, everybody wants to be good. Everybody wants to be happy. And so the kids want that too. So it's possible to relate to that in a bodhisattva way. But unless there's specific practices, it's hard. And there could be some big project like, uh, I don't know if you uh, uh, know of, of uh, Norman's book, Taking Our Places, but it's a coming of age um, idea, which is perfect for 11 and 13 year olds. The question is how are we, uh, how are we uh, going to use this time as a transition to a truer and more satisfying life. So Pat's already doing it, but then the question is how does that get shared and checked out with other people? Josh, by recognizing that you depend on the Sangha for accountability, that gives that is a strength as well as weakness. It means that you can approach people and say, are you willing to be a person I can depend on right now? You can develop a sense of sangha during this time. Who are my buddies? Are there three people who would be willing to kind of be accountable to each other or one person? And think about uh, whether, um, think about whether I can dust off that cushion and sit down on it for 60 seconds a day, which is realistic. Like when I put on the rice, can I sit down for 60 seconds or five minutes? And if I have a deal with somebody, uh, that if I do that, they'll you know, kind of admire me. Um, or if I don't do that, they'll ask me about whether I've done it or not. That's that, that might be what you need from someone. But how can we just be honest with ourselves and understand what our situation is and come face to face with its beneficial qualities and with its difficulties and be willing to share our experience so that we can stabilize it and develop a, a way to work into it. So that's my, um, that's my question. Of course, for Tracy, family is a kind of a sangha. There's a family culture and family intentions. So how do you do that? How do you recognize kids' need for space and their capacity, um, how their capacity is small and how uh, you might need to do things that broaden it or that um, acknowledge the frustration of it? Anyway, I hope that this speaks to the range of possibilities and the range of design, um, Sangha design um, uh, responses that can come from similar parameters expressed in different ways in people's lives. Does that, is, is that okay? Does that, um, maybe somebody else wants to comment on that or, or um, Josh, Pat or Tim might want to comment further and respond. Oh, I think the most meaningful thing that I heard you say for my practice was 
what a wonderful idea of establishing three people that you actually um, manifest some kind of a relationship with that they'll be with you throughout this time. Actually, you speak about it too. So I, I really love that idea. Thank you. Thanks. Anything else I need to know, Tim? Was that uh, Josh? Was that complete garbage, or was there something in there you could relate to? <laughs> Just nope. ask. No, it totally works for me. I um, I just finished a district. Well, I just defended a dissertation. I have to write some more over the summer. Um, and one of the things that I really regret is that I didn't have a community of people who were not only holding me accountable but also challenging me. There's mm -hmm. this kind of um, culture. I think a good culture actually among graduate students where the idea is that um, a good dissertation is a done dissertation. <laughs> um, and I think that works except sometimes it sort of leads you to try to get away with things when maybe you know better. <laughs> um, and, and there were definitely moments when I was proofreading sort of like hurriedly at the very last minute, you know, like 11.59 on the night it was due, you know, whatever, or like 12.05 a.m. Um, where I was like, there's no way they're gonna let me get away with this. Um, and in point of fact, sometimes committees do let you get away with stuff like that. I think often to the detriment of the student. Um, and so, I'm in a situation where my committee didn't let me get away with that stuff, and that's good, but I feel horrible about it. <laughs> um, and, and so, you know, it's, it's, it's um, all of which is to say this feels like an analogy for my practice when, like, at 8.30, I woke up and didn't want to get out of my bed. Um, you know, I didn't want to sit on my cushion. I didn't want to, to sort of be with myself for for 35 minutes um mm -hmm. and so so th this is for me sort of like the paradox at the core of my zen practice which is that i need other people to be by myself um well you need support yeah you need people side by side with you yeah but that's the the uh, dissertation is more face to face or in your face the that dissertation committee yeah but uh, what I want to say is no matter how much you thought you got away with or how little you can do to, to, to answer their questions and redo that section, no matter any of that, in 10 years you're going to look at your thesis and say, I did that? Right. Wow. And that was the beginning of X, Y, and Z. So it will um, assign a dissertation committee. Yeah, that's a good idea. Well, yeah, I'm gonna jump in. Sorry, just really quickly, Wendy. Wendy and Nick. Yep. Um, I just wanted to put in a quick plug for our mutual aid sharing project. This is this feels like a perfect use for it. It's not only for tangible things that need to be shared or projects, but for accountability buddies. So um, people who are seeking someone to reach out to, anything like that. So if um, I'll, uh, it looks like. Yeah, Bruce has just posted. Okay, tell me, tell us briefly what it is. 
it's just a, it's actually just a spreadsheet um, that people will go to and fill out a form to either ask for something they might be needing or to offer assistance for, for cool. uh, something that's actually posted. Yeah. 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 And yeah, so okay. we will just connect. Okay. Yeah. May I? Um, there's a couple of things I want to say in that. That's yeah. inspiring. Thanks, Wendy. Hi, yeah. Nick. So, uh, yeah. I, I, yeah. Um, I, so, um, I, I want to say a couple of things. First of all, I think that requests for support can be physical requests for support, like food or like a, um, a check-in call um, to see if you need anything, uh, money, um, you know, material resources um, are an important thing to offer. But there's also physiological resources, like um, Josh was saying, his trouble is to get to the cushion. Well, some people have trouble winding down. Let's say somebody has the intention to turn off Zoom and internet at 8 p.m. so they can get sleep and not do emails. You know, somebody could, uh, uh, so that they can actually sit for five minutes before they go to bed, say the gata and go to sleep. You know, some people might want to be able to do that. That's a physiological request for assistance. Um, Let's say there's a, a, or let's say somebody is finding themselves binge watching um, uh, reruns um, for 12 hours a day and wants to have someone to eat mindfully with once a week. So they remind themselves that there's such a thing as civilized dining. Maybe you use Zoom or the internet to get together with someone and have a meal with them, a full meal. You might even share a menu. Um, you might decide to bring out the fine china. Okay, there's also like emotional um, support. Let's say somebody is scared. Let's say that somebody is immune compromised or has had pneumonia fairly recently and is afraid Having a, a request for support might be a request for to speak to somebody every so often as a friend. Or let's say somebody has um, intellectual um, uh, or uh, you know intellectual frustration, like they're they're finding that the lack of uh, interpersonal stimulation is making them feel dumb. That can help, you know, to actually share beauty with somebody and be able to talk about, um, you know, you can both take a virtual tour of the same museum and have a conversation about it. Um, and there's also the spiritual support where somebody, uh, let's say somebody who's thinking about receiving the precepts but doesn't have other people to practice with right now, to be able to get in touch with their teacher, or another Sangha member is another form of request. So requests can happen at any level. And so don't be shy about what Wendy has offered. Yeah. Yes, okay, you're welcome. And thank you for doing it. So um, is it okay? Uh, 
uh, Sangha, if I read you some of the questions that I wrote about Sangha this week, do you mind? I mean, they don't have, I'm not going to answer them because they're answers that can only happen with other people. But um, I was thinking about, you know, um, the inspiration for this was that the Eno at San Francisco Zen Center sent around the tank and sheet. And so somebody made a, a, a comment like, oh yeah, well, are people gonna be honest about this? Or are they just gonna turn off video and go back to sleep with Zoom on for the send out? And then I thought, oh, well, is this how I wanna think about it? Do I wanna think about it in terms of are people being honest or dishonest? And you know, they have to go to Zazen or they don't have to go to Zazen. Is that really how I wanna think about uh, our offerings at San Francisco Zen Center. I realized no. So I made a, a try to develop some inspirational questions for practice. And I thought if the Sangha could be a seat of inspiration about a new way of thinking about practice based on a, a problem that's occurring in the world, a devastating problem that's occurring in the world in which people are like unevenly receiving the bad effects of this problem and people are unevenly like either working double time or triple time to keep those groceries and that health care going and exposing themselves to sickness or death or else they're hiding in their um, places because they have to because we're encouraged to or because we're scared so what would be an inspiring set of some of the questions so i have four or five big sets of questions, which it's okay with you if I just read some of them. Thank you. So don't feel like you have to register every single question. I can send it if you're interested in reading them again or something like this. And it's just my preliminary thoughts. So the first set of questions is about um, the gift of Dharma. How does a Sangha in residence in an urban temple or a city give the gift of Dharma and fearlessness to our wider community in a time of uncertainty? What do we need to present to the world embodied by our practice? How do neighborhood practitioners join in or support the giving of this gift? So people at different stages or degrees of connection with the Sangha. So the first question was about giving the gift of Dharma and the gift of fearlessness. The second one is about accountability and um, accountability to our deeper intention. How do we model and communicate to ourselves and others that we are using the weeks of shelter in place both wisely and compassionately? The third one is about um, schedule or, um, you know, kind of structure. What is the benefit of a daily schedule at this time to someone who's practicing, to a whole sangha, to people who see or hear about the sangha's practice, to all beings? What number of people need to do how much of the schedule to exemplify practice as a community? 
What limitations do you see in schedule as a unifying practice agreement at this time? What changes would you suggest during shelter in place to build energy and unity for our next phase, which could be continuing in shelter in place for re-entry? So the fourth one is, um, is about kind of design parameters. What are the most important functional elements in residential and non-residential Sangha practice at this time and in the place where we are? How similar or different is this to other times and conditions? So like what Tracy was talking about. Examples of other functional elements can include stuff like large and small group meetings, safe sanctuary, modeling of individual or interpersonal practices. What elements of Sangha practice are less important at this time? Individually, interpersonally, institutionally, for the lineage or for the community. And then the fifth one, the, the last one is in terms of SMART goals for one own, one's own practice. SMART means um, specific, measurable, attainable, uh, real and time uh, committed. So what specific, measurable, attainable, realistic practice commitments do you make at this time? For what period of time and how often? And what is the motivation or thinking behind your response? So those are the questions I came up with, um, you know, trying to think about, well, um, if I were going to design a practice for myself, a small group of people, or for a big group of people, what would it be? And it came about because, of the, as I said, of the Tenkin agreements that we were going to discuss in the practice committee, which kind of reviews everybody to make sure that they're doing 80% of the schedule, if they committed to that. And um, uh, since we're entering a different phase of shelter in place where it's no longer short term, but now it's medium or long term, it's time to review those and design more accurately to our needs. So anybody want to comment on anything about that? Because it's, um, it might be, um, I, I realize that's a lot of questions. Huge number of questions. Too many questions, sorry. But <laughs> that's what came up. This is Who's Karen. This? this is Karen. Um, I just wanted to say it, it would be great to, I'd love to see those uh, written. So if there, there is a way uh, to send those to us, I, I think those are, those are be good to just review periodically. Um, very nice. I sort of hadn't thought about our. <laughs> situation and in practice in those days so thank you thanks well i think that that's another contribution that lay people can make to relate institutional practice to the actual changing needs of the of the community and so i actually you know so i wrote down for this lecture i wrote down the sutra and my questions so i can send that if it doesn't uh, let's say, uh, Churro, if it doesn't come in an hour, just email me and remind me, okay? Thanks. I'll, I'll do that.
Anything else I need to know or um, you want to know? I was just uh, going to ask. Uh, my name's Ernest. Hello. Hi. Um, I, I like what you said about, uh, you know, you could sit for five minutes or, or one minute or 35 minutes, you know, mm -hmm. but in a certain sense, it all counts, uh, I think, you know, and, and so I was going to relate that one of the first classes I took, the, uh, the teacher uh, actually had us uh, sign a written commitment to sit every day. Now she didn't say you had to sit for two hours or whatever. She said, but some amount of time, mm -hmm. and I, and and that was uh, strangely helpful <laughs> to it have actually written down and signed something saying, "Yeah, I'm going to do this for six weeks." Yeah, uh, and it didn't have to be. And there were days when I could sit for longer periods of time, and there were days where it was five minutes because I had something I had to do, but. I don't know. I, I, I like that you related that, well, five minutes counts. Uh, there's no... Yeah. Yeah. Well, there's a huge difference between not sitting and sitting for one second. Oh. <laughs> it, it's the difference between not nourishing your intention and nourishing your intention. Mm. So I'd, uh, I'd like to relate it to the four nourishments, if that's possible. And this practice of five minutes came from, um, I, I had a small group for about 10 years um, in Oakland, where um, there was a huge variety of people who were coming to the, um, to the city group. So it wasn't helpful to have um, assumptions guide my understanding or request for what people would do. And, um, so the nourishments that the Buddha taught are nourishing the body, nourishing the senses, nourishing the intention, and nourishing the consciousness. So he teaches them negatively in the sutras. But I wanted to teach them positively. So uh, how that came about was that um, um, in 1983, I quit. Tassahara. So I had been in residence at Tassahara for a long time and had been ordained. And I decided to leave the monastery to be trained as a yoga teacher because I had learned through personal experience with the instructions that I had been given that those instructions were designed for 18-year-old Japanese boys and that that wasn't going to help me. And at that time, also I had had a miscarriage when I was in the uh, monastery and I realized that I was going to have to pay a lot more um, attention to my body and to the fact that I was a married Soto Zen priest than I had been paying before and so what would that be so I came back and was trained as a yoga teacher and I started offering yoga for sitters you know, which I've been doing continuously for uh, 35 years. And so I have this Wednesday morning 45-minute um, yoga class. And also once a month on Fridays, I do uh, meditation posture Fridays uh, for people's particular um, uh, needs. And I offer those for free because uh, from, from my point of view, they're Dharma teaching. 
So um, anyway, I'm not trying to plug them, but that was the solution that I came up with to acknowledge that people's needs, physical needs vary a lot in a country that has a lot of different types of people in it. So um, nourishing the body, food, sleep, and exercise. We don't have a, a unified culture. So we tend to go with work demands or daily demands. Um, you know, some of us have strong relationships with um, food traditions, you know, the cultural food traditions, or um, a feeling about the beneficialness of uh, kind of daily regularity in sleep and exercise, or bathing customs. You know, some of us have that, and some of us don't. So what would it be to think of that nourishment as part of our practice life. I should look at this. Okay. Okay, thanks. So um, so how do you do that? And then I realized that doing these physical nourishments was the basis of shamatha. The old name for Zazen is shamatha vipassana. So shamatha meaning settling and vipassana meaning seeing. So shamatha practice is the whole yogic side of, um, of uh, zaza. So it includes uh, taking in food with gratitude and a sense of ceremonial um, acceptance of the union of giver, receiver, and gift. But also sleep and exercise. And then nourishing the senses means to give ourselves uh, visual, sound, um, smell, taste, touch, um, experiences of harmony that are conducive towards serenity. And if we don't have that in our life, um, to uh, create them. Um, so like when I was, um, just, just we can create them. I was, uh, uh, it doesn't take more than setting out a blade of grass to um, create a sense that we're honoring um, the beauty of nature at its time and in its place. And then nourishing the intention, like, um, you know, like Josh and I were just speaking about, if we have an intention to sit, then how do we nourish that? Um, how do we put more tools in the toolbox? Recognizing that every time we follow our intention, we nourish it. And then when we do those things, consciousness develops. Uh, consciousness is chitta and chaitashita. We usually think of that as mind, but it's actually the sum total of what we can experience and what we do experience. That has a moral dimension based on how much we nourish it. So I just wanted to say that sitting for one second is really different from not sitting at all if you have an intention to sit, because it nourishes the intention to sit and gives us a basis of stability for seeing. Oh, is, that, is my sitting practice, does it meet my needs, my real conditions? 
and my um, sense of connection with the Sangha. So thank you for that question or comment. It's important. Yeah. So um, I'm wondering also, it's, um, what is it there, 11 o'clock? Um, so we've been here for an hour. And so my, um, uh, I'm, I'm wondering if you need like a seventh inning stretch. <laughs> you guys do baseball in Austin, don't you? <laughs> so um, you might want to make yourself comfortable. It's not that we're going to go on forever, but it is that if we really want to um, hear and respond from our own experience and with a sense of respect for our own needs and intentions, we have to take care of the body. So stillness is not always um, still. So anything else I should know? For anybody? Or do we need tea and food? Vicki, this is Nick. I'd, Hi, Nick. I'd like to add kind of a thought that's arising, and a lot of what you said is really kind of speaking to me. Um, I, probably similar to what Josh has been um, reflecting, it, have had a difficult time with maintaining a schedule and, 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 and making space to practice. Um, and I find that it's um, arising with some sense of anxiety about what's going on in the world and what's coming in the future, uh, six months or a year. Or mm -hmm. And um, I'm struggling with this, this, this anxiety, which kind of reminds me of a feeling of dukkha in a way that it's this, just this low-level threat out in the world. And what I'm struggling with is the the need to feel like I have to do something about it. Um, mm -hmm. And that seems to be getting in the way of practice. And it reminds me of Suzuki Roshi's words to um, practice doing not doing, which I feel like I need to get more in touch with. Um, because when I try to sit, I find myself feeling like I need to work on the problem, which really, can't very well be worked on except by sitting. And I wonder yeah. if you could help me with that. Yeah, you've done 50% of the work. So what I'm saying is that um, you and Josh have uh, both shared that you've done 50% of that work by noticing the difficulty. Um, you can trust your own sense of sanity and intention and nourish it and make it stronger by respecting the Dharma position of difficulty that, um, that is coming, that's really coming up in your, in your practice. So that's the front door into um, Chitta Bhavana, into developing your practice. And so what I would, uh, what I would ask or note is that when we sit, our basic anxiety appears to get higher because there are fewer things like saying, oh, look at me instead, you know? 
So, um, you know, it's kind of the, um, the lobster boiling approach to anxiety, where you kind of go, but if you sit, you've gone from here to here all at once, the moment you sit down. Um, otherwise, there's a slow, steady rise until an epidemic happens when it goes up or something else. But when we sit, we're deliberately um, facing what arises around the condition of the world. And so um, it might be a doctoral level practice at this point to sit with the anxiety about the pandemic, about the social inequity that feeds the um, impact of the pandemic, um, and the climate change, which is only, you know, there's a teeny little reprieve that we have for a few weeks, and then kaboom, all of that comes back on us with all of its tornadoes and seismic uh, uh, stuff and, um, and fires and all of that stuff. So uh, what I want to say is, um, here, here's my pinky. Uh, this is like a pinky square to deal with the anxiety. And where it came up for me was like I was having a Seder with people on Passover. And we started reciting the plagues. There's these 10 plagues, which you guys can look up. I'm not going to name the plagues. The reason I'm not going to name them is because every plague that came up, I was like, oh, my gosh. Oh, my gosh. Oh, my gosh. You know, so... The whole story of Passover is about freedom, like people escaping slavery and going to freedom. But the plagues were part of it. It was like God's punishment on the enslavers. And so, um, what I, what I, so I was sitting there, and you know, ever since that, hearing those plagues, I'm drawing the link between the epidemic and the kind of um, social inequity and attitude that we have uh, dominance that humans have towards the planet. And so um, the anxiety level is high. And I'm telling you this not because I not because of the need for sympathy, but because I think that any uh, human being who's not anxious, um, is either um, distracting themselves or distracted or doesn't know enough about the world. That um, children don't necessarily have to be anxious because their parents protect them. But there's a lot of children in the world whose parents can't protect them. And it's getting to be more. So, um, Anyway, what I want to say is, if you keep down your um, anxiety, uh, there are ways to keep down the anxiety in practice to, instead of a doctoral level to a 101 type level. And uh, I'll give you some of those ways. So in the sitting practice, if you open your eyes and ears a little bit more, knowing that you're doing that, so if you modulate the quality of your intention, attention, so that it's not quite so internal. That will help relieve the anxiety by giving the thinking mind something to relate to. 
but then you have to still stay with and monitor the quality of your attention when you do that. Another way is by practicing more frequent and longer walking meditation. A third way is by um, following the example of autistic kids who sometimes rock to provide um, reassuring internal feedback that, uh, that, uh, that gives the nervous system a way to relate to the interconnected part of the nervous system. Like you, even if you just rock back and forth a few times, you feel that that happens in the body. So every so often in the Zazen practice, if you notice the anxiety level rising, you can just press one buttock bone and then the other buttock bone and do that slightly rhythmically. And then when you feel the answering breath, the anxiety level will be lower. So you relate it back to the ground. And that's a feature of um, the earth element in us, that it um, allows a sense of connection and uh, an increased sense of solidity and a decreased sense of relationship to the unpredictable quality of change. So those are some meditation suggestions for working with anxiety in daily meditation. And so there's lots more, but those are some of them. Okay. Thanks, Nick. So um, I, have a, I have a feeling that we're coming around the arc of this presentation to the other side, and that it's almost time for us to make a transition to uh, tea or um, some other form of question and answer where we kind of formally bow out and then informally continue the discussion. We have the, um, uh, we have the chant. So should we chant and formally end this? And then if somebody wants to stay or have tea or something, we can do that. Should we chant? May our intention equally extend to every being.